Good morning, church. Yeah, they, they don't have a lot of enthusiasm today, Brady. I don't know what to do. I said there's going to be a baptism. I mean, what the heck? Come on, we can be excited. This is a great day to be here. It's going to be a beautiful day. The Steelers are going to lose today. I mean, like, what more could you want? I mean, it's going to be an incredible day. Well, um, you, are, you are here on a great Sunday. I'm excited for baptism later. Um, but uh, for now, we're continuing a series in the book of Philippians, which is uh, subtitled Life Built on the Gospel. And today we're going to get this fascinating glimpse into uh, Paul's inner thought world. Um, he's pondering living and dying. So what we're going to see in Paul today is something that we should all hope and strive for, which is this overflowing, abounding joy in Christ. The, the joy of Christ, the inner joy of Christ that can do strange things in people. The person who has discovered true Christian joy is truly free, like nobody else. Uh, theologian Michael Heiser, he defines joy as a theistic optimism about life. And that's, that's what we see in Paul. It's an optimism. It's not based on circumstances, but it's based on God who controls the circumstances. So uh, I heard somebody say that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's not a false emotion that's manufactured by pretending things are fine. But it is this, this belief, it's a fruit of the Spirit, it's this optimism, a theistic optimism about life. So while Paul's body was locked up in a Roman prison, his heart was truly free. Because Christian joy had gotten hold of him. So joy isn't a fickle feeling, it's a, it's a moral category. And today we're going to see what this joy did to Paul. So let's dig in. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up here at verse 18. Actually, it's the middle of the verse, 18b. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. Let's, let's pause here for a second. We're going to look at joy that increases courage for Christ is our first point here. Joy increases our courage for Christ. So here's the situation. Paul is rejoicing at the advance of the gospel. We talked about that last week. And that's even through incredible suffering that he's going through. So he suffered to see the gospel advance. And he's under massive physical, mental, spiritual stress. So physically, he's chained up between two guards. They're watching over him, and he's tired, alone. He's in pain. And so, but even though his body is chained up, his desire is for Christ to be honored in his body while he's chained up, whether it be for him to continue living or if he's executed. Mentally, he's burdened by this upcoming trial. He's awaiting a legal verdict that will determine his future on earth, guilty or innocent. Formerly, before he became a Christian, he was this prominent uh, Jewish leader and a Roman citizen. He had this nice career lined up for himself. He was upstanding and respectable. But now he's in prison and he's been humiliated. He's lost everything. He lost his career, his reputation, and his physical liberty. But then spiritually, he's joyful. Spiritually, he's thriving, right? I mean, he's overflowing with this joy, and he credits that joy, uh, he credits two things 
for that. One, he says, I know you're praying for me. And because I know you're praying for me, I can, he has this joy. But second, it's like he's, the spirit is helping him. So their prayer and the help of the spirit is what is giving him this inner peace, this inner sense of joy spiritually where he's thriving. Now, in verse 20, there's two words that stand out that I want to talk about a little more. Two words, and that's the word ashamed and the word courage. Why are those words on Paul's mind? You know, when I think of Paul, uh, maybe you're this way. We, we naturally think of this towering figure that is fearless, and he's, he's got this unflinching conviction and courage. But verse 19 indicates that Paul's courage isn't innate, right? He has courage because they're praying for him. He has courage because the Holy Spirit is helping him. It is something that, that God is producing in him. Now, something I've not really given a lot of thought to before is how shameful it would have been for Paul to be in prison. You ever wonder like, what his parents would have thought? Like, we don't really know anything about his parents. We don't know anything about what anybody else thought. But what about, you know, his, his Jewish family and friends? His former colleagues, what would they have thought? You know, in Philippians 3, in a couple chapters from here, Paul describes his former life as a Jew, and he said that he was a rising star pupil, you know, the head of the class. He was very well respected in the community. But now he's in prison. I mean, what would his mom think? You know, if he's, you know, she sees friends at the grocery store, and they're like whispering about her. It's like, oh, that, that, that you know what happened to her son? Can you believe what happened to him? It's like it's a shameful thing, right? There's, there's a lot of, of humiliation that would have happened because of Paul's predicament. I mean, as Christians, we've got this tradition of honoring those who are suffering for the gospel and they're heroes of the faith, people that have been martyred for Christ. But this is before that tradition was established. Paul, there was no honor for Paul in being in prison. It was embarrassing and it would have, people would have been tempted to be ashamed of him. So in 2 Timothy uh, Paul is coaching his young pastor, his young pastor friend, Timothy. And this is what he tells Timothy. Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Paul is saying here, like, he's telling Timothy, don't be ashamed of what we believe and don't be ashamed of those who believe it. But that would have been a temptation. You know, the more Christianity loses respectability in the world, the more Christians will be tempted to be ashamed of it. As Paul said here in 2 Timothy 1, there's the two temptations to be ashamed of our beliefs on the one hand and to be ashamed of other Christians on the other. Now, let me tell you why that matters for us. At this church, we're, we're in an urban environment, right? So if we're here in the city, we're close to a university, uh, that, that just, you've got people that are successful, a lot of people that are successful, people that are educated, they're going places, their, their careers are moving places. And add to that a theological tradition that we come from, which is Reformed theology, Reformed Christianity, that's rooted in an ancient biblical truth that is, is propelled by a lot of intellectual rigor. I mean, that's, that's where we come from. I mean, that's our theological tribe. When you combine those things, there could be this, uh, this respectable sort of Christianity emerges to where that's really what we've signed on for. We've signed on for a version of Christianity that's respectable, that, that we can kind of, you know, hold our head up high and, and we don't have to be embarrassed about anything, right? 
So we can, we can sort of internalize the idea that we're the smart Christians. We're the respectable Christians. We're not, we're not like those people that, that we'd rather not associate with. We're the ones that, that are kind of intellectually uh, robust and we, we're theologically sound, right? And I've noticed this in Reformed Christianity. I've noticed this in our and I've seen this in my own heart, and the Lord has led me to repent of it. But it's, it's this theological elitism about, about our faith, where we want a version of Christianity that will never embarrass us. We want a version of Christianity that, we can, that is respectable, that we're, we're never going to have to run and hide from, and that we can, you know, we can hold our heads high. So it's a temptation to look down, then, on other Christians that we would see as less sophisticated, because they might believe things that embarrass us. And this, is, this can be true, especially if we're raised in that kind of Christian environment where as our adult selves, we want to distance ourselves from the beliefs of our parents, grandparents, and the community we came from. We want to think, I'm not like them. I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm, you know, I'm a more, I'm a more erudite type of Christian. So 2 Timothy 1.8 speaks to us, doesn't it? It tells us, don't be ashamed of what we believe. And don't be ashamed of others who believe it also. Shame is a form of suffering. And when we feel ashamed, that can weigh us down psychologically. So naturally, we're going to want to avoid feeling ashamed. We're going to want to avoid that psychological pressure of being embarrassed because of what we believe. So we're going to want to avoid saying, doing, or believing things or associating with people that can cause us to feel shame. Now, Paul wasn't stupid. And I'd never really paid attention to this before. But it stood out to me in you know, studying it this week. He, what stands out to me is like he, he, was, he felt this temptation to be ashamed because he's in prison. This guy who otherwise, apart from Christ, would have fast-tracked to the head of the Jewish class. This guy who would have been um, very well respected amongst his own people in the Jewish community. And so he knows that him being locked up is a source of shame for him and for those that follow his teaching. And so he tells Timothy, his pastor, he says, hey, don't be ashamed of our testimony and don't be ashamed of me, a prisoner for that testimony. Rather, be prepared to suffer Suffer psychologically, suffer shame and embarrassment, suffer even humiliation because we believe things that the world doesn't value. We believe things that others that we know and that others that we might want to respect us will think is ridiculous. So Paul says, don't be ashamed of me or what I teach, but rather suffer. And the best way to overcome that temptation is to overpower it with joy which is what Paul did. So Paul, in this shameful situation, he opens up his, this uh, verse here, yes, and I will rejoice, verse 18. And in fact, joy is one of the predominant themes of the whole book of Philippians. He had this insatiable delight in Christ. So the vision for our church is that we want to be a solid, healthy, faithful church that lasts for generations, that, that will outlive all of us, right? 
You know, we've, uh, we've talked about it being like an oak tree. You know, it doesn't grow fast, but it grows strong. It grows, it grows big, and, and it's, it's got this health to it. Now, one thing that can stop that vision in its tracks is for us to start being ashamed of what we believe. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says something like this. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So he's talking about people that are... Uh, that they're wanting to reach for the gospel, some of those people are being saved, meaning that they're responding one way to it, and there's other people who are rejecting it, and they're responding the other way to it. So to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Two different responses to the same message. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, and in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let me illustrate this. Uh, my wife, Laura, she loves Yankee candles. Ladies, I don't know, maybe you do too. My wife loves Yankee candles. Harvest is her favorite. I asked her this morning, what's your favorite? She said, Harvest, it's right over there. She said, why? I said, well, you'll find out later. So, uh, but she loves Yankee candles, so uh, Christmas gift ideas for my wife, everyone. You can, I'll just throw that in there. But, um, but she loves the Yankee candles because she loves the smell, right? She loves the aroma of it. So whenever we have people come over, she'll light this candle because she likes the smell and she wants to create a pleasant environment in our home. And occasionally, from time to time, somebody may not like it or they might just like they have a really sensitive nose or something. And so they, uh, they, don't, they don't like the smell. And that doesn't make her feel ashamed, though. Just because somebody doesn't like it doesn't make her feel ashamed. It's just like, okay, you don't like that. She's still going to burn it because she likes it. And because it, it, it's, it's the, the sort of environment that she wants in her home, she's still going to burn it, but she's not ashamed of, of the, the aroma. So as Christians, we are the aroma of Christ in a dying world. Some people are going to love it because they're being saved. It's, it's sweet to them. And others are going to hate it. Because it is, it is a stench of judgment, a stench of death to them. And we can't control whether people love it or hate it. That's not our job. Our job is simply to burn it. And as it's burning, it will draw in those who are being saved. And it will repel those who are, who are not being saved. And we, we can't control that. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul says this about shame. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is the power of God. The power of the gospel comes from the Holy Spirit who applies it to people's hearts as it is proclaimed. So whenever we proclaim the gospel, whenever we tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, for those who are being saved, the Holy Spirit applies it to their hearts and affirms in their hearts saying, this is true, this is real, believe it, follow it, this is good. And the Holy Spirit, uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote the book Religious Affections where he describes it as like the Holy Spirit creates in their heart a taste. A, a, a sensation to where they find it desirable. They're attracted to it. 
So the gospel is not respectable. It doesn't need to be respectable for it to be powerful. It just needs to be clear. And that's what we do. All right, here's the second point. The joy that, de- that increases our delight in Christ. Joy that increases our delight in Christ. So verse 21, let's keep reading. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy, there it is, and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So that first statement that he makes here in verse 21, he says, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. We have to stop and ponder what that means. It, it, it is an odd statement. We're, we're familiar with it, maybe, if you're a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible. You might be familiar with that statement, but if you really examine the actual words, it's an odd, it's an odd thing to say. So to live is Christ, that's, it reads almost like a math equation, right? To live will be on one side of the equation equals Christ on the other side of the equation. So what does that mean? To live is Christ. So whatever life is, whatever it means to truly live or to have fullness of life, it all can be summed up in Christ. Whatever life is, whatever true living is, Christ is what that means, So the Bible teaches that Christ is the creator of life. He is the meaning of life. He is the fullness of life. And he's the goal of life. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, there it is again. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. A few verses later, Colossians 3.11, he says, Christ is all and in all. So there is no life apart from Christ. All of life is summed up in Christ. Jesus himself said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And abundant is like a rich, extraordinary, otherworldly kind of life that is within us. And because of this life and the joy of that life, Paul is so willing to endure suffering, to endure pain or prison, to even endure humiliation and shame because of this joy that is in him. Because he's overpowering the shame and the pain and anything else. The joy that he has overwhelms all of those other things because Christ is his life. You ever heard of a quality of life index? Quality of life index, Uh, this is uh, according to, well, I looked it up on Wikipedia, but then they cite Britannica, but here's a quote. Quality of life index, this, according to Britannica, it is the degree to which an individual is healthy, comfortable, able to participate in or enjoy life events, health, education, recreation, leisure time, social belonging, religious beliefs, safety, security, and freedom. You take all of those things and combine them, and I guess you, you 
to whatever extent that can be measured or, or noted. It's like that, that all adds up to a quality of life. That's how good your life is. Now, interestingly, like, you know, religious beliefs are tucked in close to the bottom. You know, it, it hardly makes the top 10. But it's, it's, it's considered like one factor among many. And, and that's fairly common, right, for, for some people to think that you can simply take an overall well-being profile and you add a little bit of religious beliefs to it, and it'll increase your quality of life index a few points. I mean, that's a common way that, that some people approach their, their religious beliefs. Paul's life is driven by a totally different conviction. Because for Paul, if you have Christ, you know that religious beliefs category, if you have Christ, none of the other stuff can, can take away the joy that you have. None of those things necessarily can impact the, what it means to live. So Paul's life is driven by this one simple conviction, to live is Christ. Jesus is his whole life. If you have Christ, you've got it all. You have everything. So Christ is our, our, our highest treasure, the deepest desire, our closest companion, our greatest joy. Jesus is all of those things. You might know the song, uh, Give Me Jesus, Fernando Ortega. I'm kind of dating myself here, but I love this song. Fernando Ortega, the song, Give Me Jesus. Very simple song, but there's this one line uh, towards the end of every refrain. He says, you can have all this world Give me Jesus. He says, I don't care about anything else. You can have all the world. You can have all of the indicators in your quality of life index. Give me Jesus. That's Paul's heart. So what would you put on the other side of the equation? To live is blank. To live equals blank. What is life to you? Now, you've You've been listening so far. You're probably like, oh, it's Christ. Well, hold on. <laughs> like, be honest with yourself. What, what emotionally or, or in terms of what you really desire, if you were to just, just kind of map out the ideal, you know, future for your life, like, what, what does real living mean to you? What is life to you? Would you say you can have everything else? Just give me Jesus. Like, could you so flippantly brush aside and disregard everything else if only you could have Christ? Does Jesus mean that much to you? A lot of times we, we have these if-only statements that indicate what we really value. So, if only she would notice me. If only we could get out of debt. If only we could have a child. Then... Life would be complete. Then we would be satisfied. Then I would be content. But whatever you put there is something that you're adding to Christ. You're saying, I need Jesus and a few other things to break in my favor in order to be content. Paul says, to live is Christ. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. We know that's a lie to believe that we can add to Christ. Now, we, theologically, if you've been around church for a while, you know what the right answer is. You make, of course, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's Philippians. But that's, that's not the way we live. A lot of times, like, we, our joy in Christ can be diminished by how much we lack some of those other quality of life indicators. If we are in debt, 
if we are uh, financially burdened, if we are uh, wanting things that we don't have, if we are suffering physically, emotionally, if we, if we have other things that we want that we're not having, it can diminish our joy. And Paul says, like, that doesn't have to affect your joy. That doesn't have to change the, the, the experience of goodness and life that you have. There's only one correct answer. Christ is life. To live is Christ. If you don't have Christ, then you, it doesn't matter what else you have. You know, Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Luke 17, Jesus said this. He said, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So for that reason, Paul could offer this other math equation. So to live as Christ is one math equation. The other math equation is to die is gain. That's, a, that's, a, that's another strange thing to say. Now, to die doesn't refer to the state of death. He doesn't, he's not saying, I'd be better off dead. That's not what Paul is saying. To die refers to the act of dying, meaning the, 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 what, what you go through in dying. It's not a statement of despair, but rather he's saying, when I die, that's when I will be most fully alive. Right? That's, when, that's when I will most fully enjoy Christ. So since, for Paul, all of life is summed up in Christ, and since we have eternal and abundant life in Christ, then dying isn't really dying. Dying isn't just death. Dying doesn't bring our life to a close. Rather, dying brings our old life to a new and better and eternal opening. So for Christians, dying is where the life of Christ truly begins. Full, most, most fully begins where we are experiencing new horizons of joy and pleasure that we were created for. That's when it starts. And Paul could hardly contain his excitement. I mean, you can imagine if, if, a, if a guard walked into the prison cell and said, all right, Paul, the jig is up. You are going to be executed at noon tomorrow. I mean, the only thing that would be sad for him is just that there are other people who are depending on him for their own progress and joy in the faith. And so for Paul, this, this calculus that he's weighing out, this, this kind of back and forth in his mind, he said, that's, that's what makes me, that's what keeps me going. What keeps him going is thinking that not only would he enjoy Christ in this way, but of all the other people that he could bring along that may also be progressing in joy in this way. So Paul was eagerly awaiting his death, not because he hated being alive, but because he wanted to be even more alive. And when he died, his unique apostolic ministry would end. No more epistles, no more anything else that he would do to advance the gospel. All of that would end, and it would be handed over to the next generation of Christians that follow him. And he wanted to maximize and squeeze out of his life every ounce of glory for God and effort for the gospel that he could so that those who followed him may also experience the same joy he had. 
He did it because he loved people. He was eager to receive his reward for Jesus, but he knew that his work was valuable and that Jesus had given him a calling. And so he's like, I can wait for your progress and joy. So his life on this rock would continue a few more trips around the sun for their sake. Let me show you a picture that illustrates this. Can we see it there? This is an emblem from, uh, I don't know the exact date, but roughly 100 years ago. This is from the American Baptist Foreign Missionary Society. And if you can see here, the picture is of an ox. You see this ox? And I mean, it's, uh, they need a graphic designer, I guess, because it's hard to tell what these things are. Um, right in front of the ox is a plow. But then right behind the ox is an altar that has smoke coming out of it. So there's a, there's a flame there. And do you notice what the banner says above? This is ready for either. So you have a plow and an altar. One was for digging. The other was for dying. And the banner is ready for either. And that's the heart of a Christian. The heart that says, I'm ready to spend or be spent. It doesn't matter. Whatever the Lord wants. So let me ask you a question. Who are the serious men of Christ the King Church? Who are ready to spend or be spent for Christ? Who are the serious women of Christ the King Church? Who are ready to do whatever the Lord requires? Are you out there? Now, before you say, oh, yeah, that's me, I'm in, sign me up, where's the QR code, you know, I'll fill out the form. Before you do that, be careful, because Peter said the same thing about six hours before he denied Jesus. Count the cost. However, may the Lord give us more men and women, like Paul's describing here, and like this ox. I'm ready for whatever you want to bring my way, Lord. I'm ready, ready to dig, and I'm ready to die for your glory. Send me, Lord, here I am. And if that is you, you have to hear what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.8. You have to be prepared for other people, including Christians, to be ashamed of what you believe. And they may also be ashamed of you for believing them. That has to factor in. But you can overwhelm that psychological pressure of shame with joy. And if this is you, there is one more exhortation from the remainder of the chapter. And that is, joy increases our unity in Christ. Joy increases our unity in Christ. Now check this out. Verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, 
I may hear of you that you are, now listen to these, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So Paul's locked up in the clink. He can't do much other than to pray, sing hymns, and write letters. And what's on his heart is that with him out of the picture, that this entire church would raise up to take his place, that an army of Christians would replace the one man that Paul was in his ministry. So he's begging them, live a life worthy of the gospel. And he goes on to give a snapshot of what it means. First, he says, stand firm. So don't deviate one inch from the truth of the gospel. Hold fast. Stand firm. Be immovable. And he says this using unity language. He says, with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, meaning that there's strength in numbers. When you're together, when you're unified, it's easier to have courage. It's easier to, to embolden one another and to stand firm together because you're strengthened by one another. And one of the best ways that we can give each other courage whenever we're in this struggle for the gospel is to make sure everybody knows you're not alone, that we're in this together, and that your conflict is my conflict, and I'm in this with you. I support you. And then second, he says, they're stand firm, that's one. Number two, he said that they're not frightened, not frightened in anything by their opponents, so uh, commentary, Alec Moitier, um, he, he said the connotation of this word frightened is unusual because um, it's not a common word. He said the connotation of this particular word frightened is an uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. It's very specific, isn't it? He said, but that's, that's kind of the connotation of this particular use of the word frightened. And so I want to read you a quote from his commentary. What he, said, what he says, you're not frightened at anything by your opponents. What that means is that the world up in a display of opposition designed to put the church to total rout, but the church responds with a rock-like immobility simply because it is a united church. So the unity helps them to stand firm together. And then the third thing, third thing is that it's a clear sign. It's a clear sign. Now, what kind of sign? Well, there's two signs, actually, that he mentions here. Two signs. So, so get this. He's saying that we have, you're standing firm for the gospel, so you're immovable. You're holding fast to the truth. You're doing that with unity, so you're holding true together. And you're not frightened by your opponents, so you're doing so uh, with fearless, like we talked about last week, bold, courageous, fearless, that kind of so you're doing that. And he said, when a church is standing firm on the truth of the gospel with unity and they're not afraid, it's a sign. A sign indicates. It's a truth. It's, it's like a prophetic witness. Now, what is the sign of? There are two things. One, he says, it's a sign to your opponents of their destruction. 
And second, it's a sign to you of your salvation. You see that? It's a sign to your opponents of their destruction, and it's a sign to you of your salvation. So the first one, the destruction, the opponents. Alec Moiter again, his commentary. He said, here indeed is conviction of sin. A person gripped by the awfulness of eternal loss. It arises from seeing a church standing for Christ, standing for eternal things, enduring worldly loss and disrepute for the greater riches found in the Spirit and throughout all standing united. But then he says, it's a sign to you of your salvation. So whenever a church stands together like this, striving side by side for the truth of the gospel, when they are not frightened or ashamed by what their opponents say or do, then their collective witness sends a powerful message. And God is announcing through them that Christ has overcome the world. It's a warning to God's enemies also that God's judgment is coming and it's an invitation for them to take refuge and shelter in Christ. Last two verses. 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What does he mean? There are two consistent hallmarks of apostolic Christianity. One is that we believe in Christ, but two, that we should suffer for his sake. Knowing that when we do suffer for Christ, we do not suffer alone. So this unity, this, this unified witness of striving together with other Christians, that actually can span time and place, right? Right? So it's not just us, Christ the King Church, striving together for the truth of the gospel unmoved, but rather we are entering into the same conflict that the Apostle Paul was in. Paul had different people, different circumstances, different time and a different place, but it's the same struggle. It's an eternal struggle because it's not just Paul and some guys that don't like him. Paul and the Romans, Paul and the Jews, it's not that. But Paul is, is, is standing on the side of Christ in this eternal cosmic struggle between God of the universe who created all, Jesus Christ, his son, and the powers of the evil one on the other side. It's that conflict. And we are entering into that conflict, a spiritual conflict, a struggle for the ages. And that's what we're about. Paul lived this way. This was, this was his life, and he calls us to live our lives also in the same way because of joy. Because joy overwhelms any other factor. We can suffer, we can be pressed down, we can be persecuted, we can be ashamed and humiliated, we can physically suffer, but none of those things has the power to overwhelm the joy in Christ that is our life. As ironic and counterintuitive as it might seem, Paul was legitimately happy. We hear stories in the book of Acts where they were singing hymns in prison, right? Paul was legitimately happy in the midst of his trials and suffering. And I don't think it's an overstatement at all to say Paul was legitimately happier than anybody in this room. And I don't mean this morose, miserable kind of joy that is just a theological conviction. Like, no, he was happy. He delighted in the Lord because he was giddy over Jesus. 
He knew what he had been saved from, and he couldn't wait. It was like, it was like a kid just counting down the days till Christmas Eve, where he just can't wait to get there. He knows that, that, that his, his physical death, but his eternal life is just around the corner, and every day is just this anticipation, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait, because his joy was mounting in Christ over and over throughout his life. And eventually, not too, too much later, Paul did get his wish. He ran the race. He kept the faith. He received his reward. And that same joy in Christ that was the engine of Paul's life is available to us. If we have the courage to receive it and to live it. Well, let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you've created us to know true and eternal joy. We thank you, God, that that joy that would have been eternally deprived from us because of our sin separating us from you, that you have given us the riches of the gospel that is our life and gives us joy. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that you suffered so that we can know that joy and you suffered the misery of torment and wrath in our place so that we can experience the joy of knowing our Savior and Redeemer forever. And we ask you, God, to deepen the joy that the joy of Christ in each of our hearts. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know, know Christ, does not know that joy that is still living a quality of life index kind of life where they're trying to amass a certain set of circumstances to maximize pleasure while still being miserable on the inside. Lord, we pray that you will show them the joy that is available in Jesus. And for those of us who do know Christ, Lord, we pray that all of us will, will continue to press in to that joy press into that life of Christ more to where we can say with Paul that to live is Christ. That's it. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Lord, thank you for the privilege of celebrating this in two ways today. Through celebration of the table, the body and blood of Jesus, but also the celebration of baptism. Lord, I ask you to encourage us and sharpen us and and fill us up with joy as we celebrate these two sacraments today. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.